the reading this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22, and that's on page 1219 in the Church Bible. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were obedient, disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Just before we start, uh, this time three years ago, I was commissioned on Zoom to be your assistant pastor. So thank you for uh, all of your prayers, all of your kindness, uh, all the blessings that you have showered upon uh, Amy and I over the past three years. It is uh, my joy to serve you uh, and you make it a joy. So thank you. Uh, let's begin looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. Uh, there's a movie that I've seen uh, called 500 Days of Summer. It's a romantic comedy, so I'm outing myself here. Uh, it's a romantic comedy, and it's about a man named Tom who falls in love with a girl called Summer, hence the name 500 Days of Summer. And in the movie, there's this scene where uh, the screen splits in two, and on one side of the screen, it says expectations, and on the other side, it says reality. So Tom's been invited to a party by Summer, the girl that he loves. And on the left-hand side, you see his expectations, what he expects the party to be like. He expects them to end up together. His dreams come true. But then on the other side, it shows the reality. I think you can just about see it. The reality is he's a loner, all alone. She has absolutely no interest in him whatsoever. He is gutted. He's disappointed because his expectations have not met his reality. What do we do in our lives whenever our expectations do not meet the reality of life? As we've gone through 1 Peter, we've been encouraged, haven't we? We've thought about God's incredible mercy to us as believers. 
We've thought about our new identity and how we're encouraged to live out that new identity by waging war and doing good. So the expectation would be, right, we're doing good, therefore good things will happen to us. People will like us, they'll respect us, they'll think that Christians are good people. But I don't know if you noticed, as it was being read to us, Actually, what happens whenever Christians strive to do good in the world? Do you know some of the words? Slandered, threatened, speak maliciously. Verse 17 sums it up in a word, to suffer. So, which naturally leads us to think, doesn't it? If I'm doing good and I'm suffering, then I must be doing something wrong. I must be cursed. But Peter reminds his readers and to us that if their reality is that they are doing good and they're suffering, they're actually blessed. The Lord Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mouth, blessed are you when people persecute you, when they speak evil about you for the sake of my name. You are blessed when you do good and people speak ill of you, which seems completely mad, doesn't it? It seems completely mental. We're going to do a deeper dive on that in two weeks because it comes up again in chapter four. But, but this, this morning, I want to focus in on how do we as Christians respond to suffering, to unjust, unfair suffering, slander, malicious speaking that happens whenever you're a Christian. Because whenever that happens, whenever speak, people speak ill of you, there's a battle that goes on in your heart. Will we fear man or will we revere Jesus? Will we fear man or will we revere Jesus? That's what we're going to spend the majority of our time on, focusing in on in this first section. Fear or revere the battle of all our hearts. So the fear of man. Now aware of everything that I've just said, we've been encouraged in the last two weeks, haven't we? Wage war, do good, and we think surely everything will be fine. But Peter reminds them with this stark reminder, they will face slander, threat, and malicious speaking from people who aren't Christians. Now, if you are a normal person, and most of you look normal, you will not like that. You will feel fear in your hearts. Because as human beings, we all have that desire, don't we, to be comfortable, happy, liked. We want to be accepted, praised, rewarded by others. So the prospect of people threatening us, not accepting us, not praising us, fills us with fear. And it's easy, isn't it, to rationalize that? We're relational beings. God made us this way. It's okay to want people to accept us. But notice what Peter says in verse 14. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. This could be translated as do not fear what they fear. Do not fear what other people fear. Whenever people threaten you for being a Christian, then if you speak like that in the workplace, you will lose your job. Whenever people in your family say, would you stop with this Christian nonsense? You're not to fear what they fear. Now, fear in the Bible has a broader meaning. It can mean holding someone in awe, respect, putting them in a position of worth as well as being scared of them. So fearing others being people pleasers, making other people's approval the ultimate goal is not what we are called to as Christians, which is hard, isn't it? Because we fear loss of acceptance, praise, and rewards from others. 
but elsewhere we find in the Bible, uh, Proverbs 29, verse 25, fear of man will prove to be a snare. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, a trap. So why does Peter encourage us not to fear what they fear? Because when we hear some of those things, that sounds pretty frightening, doesn't it? What, what does it look like if your life is full of the fear of other people? Well, you'll live your life constantly trying to live up to someone else's standards and values. You'll constantly be trying to keep up with the latest craze or fashion. You'll be constantly performing. You'll be trying to earn your acceptance, which means you will never truly be secure because this world is constantly changing. A life of living for others will leave you exhausted and empty. Fear of others will leave you exhausted and empty. It'll also mean you'll be crushed whenever people do inevitably reject you. You'll be defined by what other people say about you. You will need other people's approval. And even if you do give in and you live for their praise, the rewards, my friends, are so fleeting. The, the praise of man does not last. It, it may be good for a moment, but we've seen, haven't we, there is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Man's praise will fade. When we spend time in our lives fearing what other people will say or do to us, people seem so big and God seems so small. They're in control of the situation. They have the power and the right to tell us what to do. They seem so much more significant, don't they? Fearing others, wanting to fit in, wanting to be accepted, have people only say nice things about you, will leave you insecure, hollow, and enslaved. Whenever I look at myself, I am so often more concerned about looking stupid or weird than acting sinfully. What are we to do then whenever we look at ourselves and see this fear of man loom so large? What's the antidote to fearing what other people say about us? Peter helpfully doesn't just say, don't fear what they fear, but he positively says, revere Jesus. That is the antidote to fear of man. Revere Jesus. Look down at verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. We find in the Bible that the heart is like the control room. It drives everything that we do. So Peter says, take time in your hearts to consider Jesus. In the old King James, I believe it says, set Christ apart as holy. Or in the ESV, honor Christ, revere Christ, all getting towards the same idea. Take time in your week, in your day, in your life to put Jesus number one in your life. It's why, isn't it, the Lord Jesus commands us in his, uh, the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. Lord, your name above all other names. We're taking time to put the high king of heaven as our greatest treasure, as the appro one's approval that we need the most. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Take time in prayer to ask God to become bigger and for people to become smaller. Because when we honor, revere, lift up Jesus in our hearts, frees us rather than enslaves us. Everything falls into place when we have Jesus at the front and center of our hearts. But why is that the case? Why does it free us? 
Well, we're reminded that we are not accepted because of anything that we have done, because of what he has done. His acceptance, unlike the world, is unchanging because he performed where we failed. We are secure because we rest on him and not on ourselves. We, we've seen it in First Peter, haven't we, in chapter 2? The, the cornerstone rejected by human beings, accepted by God. His rejection led to our freedom and our joy. We take time, don't we, to remember that the praise of heaven will last for all eternity compared to the fleeting praise of man. We remember that the rewards of heaven will never perish, spoil, or fade. They will live, grow, and shine. They will only get better as the years continue. Now, it's, it's helpful, isn't it, just to take a moment and consider who's writing this. The, the Apostle Peter, the epitome of a man-fearer. A wee girl comes up to him and says, do you know Jesus? Absolutely not. He's terrified. So he's saying, don't, don't what's, what's the phrase? Uh, do as I say, not as I do. Peter is not a great example for us here. We see it in Galatians. He's people pleaser again. So if you're sitting here absolutely despairing as a people pleaser, there's grace for you. There's forgiveness for you. But actually, Jesus over time can free you from this fear of man. Peter then moves to apply this truth because as you revere Christ, set him apart as holy, as your heart is won over by his love, you will naturally speak of him. That's the application. Speak of Jesus because you love Jesus. I think this is what we see in Luke chapter 6. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. We are all natural evangelists for the things that we love the most. After this service, if I went up to you and asked you about your children or your grandchildren, your favorite sports team, your favorite musical, whatever it may be, it would pour out of your mouth, for that's what you love. The thing that controls your heart, you speak of. Isn't that the case? Peter says that your heart will naturally speak about what you love the most. These are familiar words, aren't they? Verses 15 and 16. Uh, our missionaries here today will have heard them so many times. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against you, your good behavior in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. As we read these verses, I'm sure many of us have heard talks about apologetics and speaking boldly about Christ. But just remember for a moment the original audience, Gentiles, slaves, women, and men, none of them high up in academia. In fact, since they were Gentiles, they wouldn't have been familiar with the synagogue or the Old Testament that much. So what, you say? Well, if you are a Christian here, if you have been a Christian for 10 years, you have probably heard around 500 sermons in your life. If you've been a Christian for 20 years, you'll have heard about a thousand sermons in your life, and so on and so forth. And of course, the disclaimer hangs over them. Not all of them would have been super engaging or super winsome, but I'm going to assume that in the majority of those, you will have heard a lot about the hope of the gospel, about what Jesus has done for you, which means, dare I say it, you are in a much, much better position than these original readers to give the reason for the hope that you have. 
The reason I say that is because over the years, really helpfully, people have pointed out that these verses are about apologetics. That's what the word answer is. Uh, defending the Christian faith, a legal defense of the Christian faith. But that doesn't mean you can't speak of the hope that you have if you haven't read a massive thick textbook. For if you're a Christian, you can share that hope. Your eternal hope that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Think about, what about Jesus won your heart all those years ago? What about Jesus makes a difference to your day-to-day life? How does his hope compare to the hopes of this earth? It doesn't have to be an essay. It can be short and sweet, but you are to take time to prepare yourself. Spend time thinking about it. How might you answer a question that someone might ask you? For that's the assumption of the logic of the text, isn't it? People will notice that you aren't a people pleaser, but a God pleaser. Not a man fearer, but a Jesus reverer. They'll notice that you embrace suffering because you are an exile. You don't respond to criticism in the same way as everyone else. You don't respond to harsh words with harshness. When others curse you, you bless them. They'll notice that, so be prepared to answer. Tell them the reason for your hope. Um, Over the past uh, year and a half, I've been going to the gentleman's chair. This is not an ad. I'm just a fan of the gentleman's chair. And Shane there, over the past year and a half, as I've gone in, he's eventually come to know that I'm a Christian. So now the first question he asks me whenever I get in the chair is, well, this week, yes, it's beautiful, isn't it? This week, as I go to sit in the chair, he said, how is the Lord treating you this week? I'm like, oh, that's an open goal, isn't it? All I have to do anytime I go for a haircut is think, pray, prepare. What is Shane going to ask me this week? Previously is, how is the flock doing? Again, open goal. Take time to prepare for those little conversations, for we are all on mission together. Whether it's in the hairdressers or barbers, whether it's on the street, in the workplace, in the home, we are all natural evangelists for the things that we love the most. Perhaps for some of us, the best, the best preparation that you could do is to pray for an opportunity to speak. And once you've done all that preparation, speak with gentleness and respect. So in that time preparing, if you are one who goes away and reads a big chunky book, it's not an opportunity then to flex or dunk on people. I've used those phrases assuming that's obvious what they mean. Flex, show off your knowledge dunk on someone, dominate them on the basketball court, show that you know so much more than them. No, Christians are not to do that. Gentleness and respect. Whenever people mock you, you are not to mock back. Whenever people tell you that faith in God is foolish, you're not to respond. The fool says in his heart, there is no God and you are a fool. That is not how you are to respond if you're a Christian. You are to be gentle and respectful whenever you share your hope. For the messenger embodies the message. We're not to speak of a Jesus who is patient, kind, loving, and gentle, and then be harsh and disrespectful. People will not notice that we are a walking contradiction. So what does this look like then? This is a helpful acronym I found for my days of Christians in sport. Share. I think it'll be on the screen behind me. Share. Stop hear, ask, respond, encourage. Stop. Whenever someone asks you a hard question, stop for a moment. 
Don't dive straight in there to give a response. Stop here. Make sure you've actually heard the question that they've asked you. What's the question behind the question? If you don't know what the question means, ask them a question back. Respond. Push against their premise. Pull them towards Jesus, what he's done for you. Encourage. Don't tell them to live off secondhand information. Why don't you meet with me and let's read about this Jesus that you seem to have made your mind up about. <laughs> Even as I say this, share. There's someone here who I've been reading the Bible with and he probably thinks, Dave does not do this. And he's right. Because sometimes in the heat of the moment, you just get a bit too excited. But it's a helpful model, isn't it? Share. Think it through. Because the good news is that people will come to know the Lord Jesus. Because think about it, God in his infinite wisdom entrusted the gospel with these people all the way back in Peter's day. And the greatest witness that the gospel is true is that the church exploded because people noticed that these people who did not live for people's praise. They lived distinctly different lives. They were exiles and wanderers on this earth. I, I find this quote helpful. Uh, God is not looking for the brilliant. He's not dependent on the eloquent the talented in sending his gospel out into the world. God is looking for the broken who have judged themselves in light of the cross of Christ. When he wants anything done, he takes up those who have come to an end of themselves, whose confidence is not in themselves, but in God. That's the kind of people that God is looking for. Our confidence is to be in Christ, which brings us to our last section, confidence in Christ. Now, a banner to hang over this section. Uh, it's in these youth booklets as well. Uh, Martin Luther, one of the greatest Bible expositors of all time, uh, <laughs> talked about this section in this way. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for any certainty what Peter means. So there's the banner over it. Martin Luther has not got a scooby-doo about what these verses are about. And he is a very confident and a very dogmatic man. He knows what he's talking about. And you will be relieved to hear that I'm not about to say, well, I do, because that would be very foolish of me. But what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the plain things that are the main things in this text. The plain things in this text are the main things. Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose. So let's walk through these verses briefly and look at the plain things and briefly touch on the obscure or the confusing things. So first, Christ's purpose in his pain. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Now, remember what we've just said about Peter's readers. They were suffering unjustly. And Peter turns his attention to the fact that their Savior and their God, the Lord Jesus, is the ultimate example of unjust suffering. Actually, if you flick through, all throughout the letter, Peter has referenced the sufferings of Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 2, verse 21. Here right now. Uh, chapter 4, verse 1, 13 of chapter 4, and 5, verse 1. You cannot make sense of this letter unless you understand that Jesus suffered. You can't understand the gospel unless you understand that Jesus suffered. So why does Peter keep bringing this up? Well, I imagine, like us today, 
Whenever we hear that Jesus suffered for us, he experienced unjust or unfair suffering, we just think, God doesn't really get it. He doesn't get what I'm going through in my life. It just isn't fair. Or perhaps we think, this unjust suffering is meaningless. What on earth could God be doing in this time of my life? Peter reminds his readers that there is purpose in pain for Jesus' suffering led to his glory and our blessing. Verse 18 is the heart of the Christian faith. If someone asked you for a reason for your hope, you could read verse 18 back to them, couldn't you? It summarizes the Christian message. By the way we have lived our lives, we do not live according to God's design for us. We, we miss the mark. We fall short. We chase after things that do not satisfy. We disobey. We are the unrighteous. I am the unrighteous in this verse. And because of that, we have no access to God. We could do nothing to bring ourselves back to him. So the Lord Jesus, obeying his Father's will, empowered by the Holy Spirit, brings us to God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He gave you that access that no one else could give you to the source of all hope and joy in life by living perfectly, righteously, never once failing to live according to God's design. He hit the mark. He went the distance. He obeyed perfectly. And think about it, rather than being blessed for living the perfect life, he was cursed, utterly crushed for our sake. The blessing that Jesus deserved is transferred to us, the unrighteous. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities to bring us to God. There was purpose in Jesus' pain. His sufferings brought you to God which helps us, doesn't it, whenever we struggle with unfair or unjust suffering. He knows what he's doing. When you look at the cross, you think, what on earth is God doing there? Nothing good can come out of that. When you look at the cross, you remember, that was to bring me to God. Jesus is still working in the midst of my unjust suffering. Next, let's get to these confusing verses. <laughs> After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So here's two main ways to understand this text. Um, both have their issues and both have their benefits. So let's look at it. Augustine, one of the greatest minds the world has ever seen, says Jesus preached through Noah while he was building the ark. So if you flick back to chapter 1, verse 12, you read about the Holy Spirit speaking through the prophets, through people like Noah. So Jesus preached through Noah to that generation. Whenever you read about the spirits who were disobedient, that's talking about uh, human beings. Prison is a metaphor for sin. So, helpful. I like it. My thoughts on this are, this view doesn't really explain what Peter says whenever it says Jesus went somewhere. He, he, he's gone somewhere. So Christ didn't go anywhere if by the Holy Spirit all those years ago he was preaching through Noah. Secondly, in the, in the scriptures, spirits always mean angels rather than human beings. Second option. Tom Schreiner says, these verses speak of Jesus' proclamation, his victory over the evil fallen angels that we find in Genesis 6 from the time of Noah which I think makes sense of what he says at the end about Jesus being exalted over all authorities, angels, and powers. I think it makes sense of some of what we see in 
Paul in Ephesians and Colossians. So those are your two options. I prefer Shriners. I think it makes more sense of the text. And some of you think, who cares? So what? What difference does it make if both are, like, we don't know which one? Well, three quick things to take from this. First, what is clear is what surrounds this verse. Don't miss the forest for the trees. The gospel is clear all around it. Jesus suffered for your sins to bring you to God. If you remember anything, remember that. Secondly, Peter in these verses highlights God's patience with sin. God is patient, giving you this morning the chance to repent. Thirdly, Noah and the eight people who were saved were exiles and wanderers on this earth who were beset by suffering and abuse from the world around them, which I think is why Peter's brought them up here. But just to think, that bit about what is clear is what surrounds it, that's helpful if you're a young person and you're reading the Bible and you think, what on earth is this about? Look for what is clear and focus in on what is clear and then ask a parent, ask a leader about what that might mean. Focus on what is clear if you're snatching five minutes while the baby's sleeping, because it only ever sleep for five minutes, won't it? I shouldn't have called a baby in it. Uh, but that, that's helpful, isn't it? Focus on what is clear. Lastly, and we're closing with this, we're going to think very briefly about the sign of baptism. The sign of baptism. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is the, at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now again, we feel confused, don't we? Because it initially seems like Peter is saying that baptism is what saves you which again seems confusing because we know that all through the letter he's been saying, Christ alone is what saves you. But I think what he means and the little dash in your Bible is helpful. He makes it clear what baptism symbolizes. What baptism symbolizes is what saves you. It's not about being washed or cleaned, the removing of dirt from the body, but it's a sign. It's a pledge of a clean conscience before God. So Peter is making the link with Noah between the waters of the flood and the waters of baptism by saying, like in the days of Noah, people escaped the waters of judgment by being safe, secure, hidden inside the ark. They're saved from God's judgment by God's gracious provision. So as Christians, we are saved from the waters of God's judgment by God's gracious provision, his son's perfect life, death, and resurrection. So baptism, the sign is appealing to God in faith for all that Jesus has done. You can have a clear conscience. Your righteous, unrighteous deeds can be dealt with. But baptism is a sign, it's a symbol, it's a reminder of what God has done for you. You can be certain that you are cleansed because Jesus was raised. The one who is seated at God's right hand can testify to what that baptism symbolizes, that you are clean that you are white as snow, that you have trusted in the Savior's blood, that your hope is in heaven, and that you will be safe for all eternity, and one day you will be with him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that uh, the plain things are the main things, that you lived, you died, you rose, and that we can be clean, white as snow, with a clear conscience. Lord, we pray that... 
by your Spirit, as we respond, that we would grasp hold of this glorious truth that you suffered once and for all, the righteous for us, the unrighteous. Would we glory in that now as we sing to you? In Jesus' name, amen.